You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Every pastor knows that on the service before Christmas, everyone wants to and expects to hear the Christmas story. Uh, But I thought I would tell you a story that's not often talked about, and and maybe we can call it the the dark side of Christmas. Uh, In other words, the the night before Christmas, but speaking about the darkness there is, not just in our world then, but even now. Uh, And so as you listen to the different scripture passages read today, all of them present two perspectives on the night before Christmas, the dark side of Christmas. And the first perspective is simply that the night before Christmas was a politically dark time. I want you to go back in history and just think about the context and setting of just how sinful and dark the world was. Uh, And so when Tim read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, remember and recall in that it said that the people who have been walking in darkness and living in the shadow of death have seen a great light. Now we know that that passage is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. But what's striking is that Isaiah is writing six to 700 years before Christ comes. And yet he refers to it as they have seen the great light. Not just a reference to past biblical revelation and truth, but, but the perfect tense that some prophets use to speak of something that is future in the past tense because it is so certain because God has decreed it. But think about that fact that the night before Christmas was a politically dark time. Isaiah references that when he's referring to the people of Israel uh, as they will first face in the northern kingdom, the Assyrian captivity. Later, the southern kingdom will face the Babylonian captivity. He says they are living in darkness. They are they're walking in darkness. That is their life. Their life is one of gloom and despair. And then accentuates that and says, not only that, they're living in the shadow of death. Uh, deep darkness. Deep despair. And I don't need to tell you when I say that. For many people, that is how they are feeling today. Uh, That is how they have been feeling, that we're living in a time of of hopelessness. And if we only focused on the statistics, we would be overwhelmed. I think I just read where something like 75 million people worldwide have died from COVID. Uh, If the statistics are correct in the U.S., one person dies from COVID every minute. So by the time we're done with this time of worship, there'll be 60 people throughout the U.S. who have died. Uh, What a reality that this is a dark time from one perspective. Uh, But we continue to go on even to think from the passage Karen read in Luke chapter 2, that it was a dark time in the first century politically. In other words, remember this census, census that is called. Caesar Augustus is the Roman emperor. He is the first Roman emperor. And and that name not only helps place the timing of these events, 
but the title Augustus simply meant revered. Now, Caesar Augustus was a relatively good emperor, as emperors go. Uh, he certainly led the people into the Pax Romana, this time of external Roman peace. But at the same time, there were deep cracks in the foundation of the Roman Empire, which would be revealed. But from the perspective of God's people, from the Jews, they were living under another nation. They, they were living under the political authority of Rome, and they were being taxed by a foreign power and authority. It was not a politically good time for them. And so we see this reality of what it means to speak of the night before Christmas, the dark side of Christmas that we mustn't forget. And then, of course, in that political arena, we can't ignore Herod the Great. Uh, and so his name comes up not only in the early narratives of the nativity of Jesus, but as you read the rest of the New Testament, you read of the activities of his grandson, of his descendants in terms of their opposition to Jesus Christ and to the work of the church. Uh, if you're wondering why he's called Herod the Great, uh, the only possible thing you could say positive about Herod was he was an impressive builder. Not only did he build extensively to try to uh, protect his legacy, uh, but the temple in Jerusalem, uh, which he invested most of his life to building, was externally a magnificent structure. But at the same time, he was a cruel and paranoid tyrant. And so the only reason he's given the name Herod the Great is more to distinguish him from his other descendants. So correctly, we could say you should refer to him as Herod the Terrible. Uh, a paranoid tyrant, to give you an extent of how paranoid he was, he, he would repeatedly change his will because he would trust someone one day, but the next day be jealous and feel that they were going to uh, rebel against him. Uh, he had three of his own sons executed because he feared that they were plotting against him. He had at least one of his 10 wives executed uh, because he was jealous of her. And then maybe the epitome of Herod's wickedness was as he himself was near death. He required that hundreds of Jews be gathered together in the Hippodrome, this big stadium that he built. And he commanded his soldiers that when news of his death hit, they were to slaughter all of those Jews so that at least it could be said there was crying in the city on the day that he died. Now, fortunately, that order was not carried out, but that gives you a glimpse into the kind of person that Herod the Great was. In fact, one of Herod's patrons, someone who you would expect to be somewhat loyal to Herod, is well known for saying it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. What a politically dark time the night before Christmas was, as we span not just from Isaiah's day, but into the first century. And then look at our own day. Uh, clearly just coming off the presidential election, uh, we know that our nation is very divided politically. Uh, we've seen examples in politics, even in church life of leaders who have fallen uh, because of disobedience to God. 
Uh, and so we see ourselves from the same perspective that the night before Christmas is a politically dark time, but of even greater consequence and concern to all of us should be that the night before Christmas was a spiritually dark time. And we see that as we look through the pages of the New Testament, where Isaiah spoke about a people living in gloom. We see that coming through. And so you have, for example, when John the Baptist, the, the promised forerunner of Jesus Christ, begins his ministry. Think of how he refers to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. He calls them, you brood of vipers, and, and indicts them for their self-righteousness, for their empty ritualism. In other words, these are to be the spiritual leaders, and, and they are spiritually bankrupt. Not only does he call them a brood of vipers, but he says the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. In other words, judgment is coming. I've never seen that expression on a Hallmark card. But that is a reality of the dark side of Christmas. It's not just proclaiming a Savior has come, but the Savior is returning to exercise judgment. But then going more to some of the birth narratives, um, in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, you have this very familiar phrase when I say it, you'll know it right away, that they traveled back to Bethlehem for the census, everything else. Jesus is born, and there was no, what, room for them in the inn. Well, what's strikingly interesting is that Jesus is rejected and despised from his very birth. Now, we often read that word in as, you know, there was kind of looking for lodging. They couldn't find any lodging. But that word in appears two other times in the New Testament. And Luke uses it in the New Testament in another place. But it's not translated in. It's translated guest room. So in other words, when you know the parable of the Good Samaritan, he's brought to an inn, not a guest room. But the word used here is actually a guest room, which I think might emphasize more this thought of rejection. In other words, Joseph travels back to his hometown for the census. He's got relatives, family there. Even his relatives and family members don't have a spare room in their own home to open up to him, to his pregnant wife, and to the child. In other words, it wasn't just a general kind of, they tried to go to, you know, Holiday Inn and they couldn't find any rooms, but they went to their own family. And their own family, because of the census and taking in other probably relatives, they didn't have room in their own homes to give him a place to lay his head. And that seems to be that forerunner. Isn't this what Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 53? That, that he will be despised and rejected among men. And then in John's opening gospel, in John chapter 1, he says he will came unto his own, and his own received him not. What a, what a context to look at those comments not just as blanket fulfillment of prophecy, but a reflection of the dark side of Christmas, 
that it was a spiritually dark time. But then that darkness seems to even grow stronger when we look at Herod. And we're familiar with that Herod did not show up at the nativity, that there's some time that goes by, possibly up to two years, where these magi come uh, from probably the area of like Iraq and Iran, uh, where Persia was. And, and they come with news of one who has been born, who is king of the Jews. And it's in Herod's response to that news that we see, once again, the spiritual darkness that has grabbed hold, certainly of Herod, but I think is a reflection of the world that he lived in. In other words, think of this. Herod was given that title, King of the Jews. He was given it by Rome, not by the Jews. So Herod bore that in a very proudful manner. Now, he receives news of a rival, another one who is saying he is king of the Jews. Imagine the irony of this. Herod the Great is probably in his late 70s. He has a reign of over 35 years. And here he is jealous and fearful of a rival, a rival who's arriving in the form of an infant. In Matthew's gospel that was read, it said Herod was outwitted or tricked by the Magi. Uh, that word means that Herod saw their actions by not returning to him uh, as being mocking him, ridiculing him. Knowing what you already do know about Herod as a person, it is not surprising to see his response. His goal is we need to search and to kill or destroy that child, as Jim read. And the word he uses there, to kill or to destroy, is not by coincidence the same word that is used by the priests and the elders when they say, we must kill Jesus Christ. It's the exact same word. What a reflection on, on Herod's dark heart and hardened heart. In a way, almost a picture of a, a New Testament pharaoh, one whose heart is hardened against God, full of spiritual darkness. And then in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, you have reference to a prophecy. Uh, the words related from Jeremiah, who says that there will be weeping and grieving uh, as Rachel could not, in a sense, bring back her children. Now, Rachel, Old Testament figure, is long gone. This is sort of Matthew's way of saying, if possible, even Rachel from the grave would be grieving at this as a mother. And as a mother, she would know what it was like when the mothers of Israel saw their families, their children ripped away from them during the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity. And he uses that to picture the, the sad darkness, the gloom, the, the sorrow that would accompany the coming of what we're saying is joyful news, great news for a savior has been born. So you see that you need to know the dark side of Christmas in order to understand that the night before Christmas is overcome by the light 
of the world, that we needed more than just a shepherd king and a righteous king and a righteous shepherd and a compassionate shepherd. There was one other component. We needed a scorned shepherd, a shepherd who was coming with one clear purpose to die for your sins and for mine. And this comes out very clearly in the passage that Heather read with, with Simeon and the scene that takes place in the temple. Uh, and as you look and maybe listen to that being read, uh, the child's already been circumcised because that would have happened on the eighth day. This is the rite of purification. And so according to Mosaic law, 40 days after the birth of a male child, the mother and father would go to the temple. Uh, the mother would engage in a, a ritual kind of bath. And then there would be this redeeming of the firstborn. So you may recall back in the Old Testament with Passover, the firstborn was to be redeemed because that belonged to the Lord. And so there was this process where you would take your, your child to the temple and a priest would take the child, they would hold the child, you would in exchange give the priest five coins and the priest would hand your child back to you. You had redeemed your firstborn. And that's the setting for the words that Simeon speaks. And so in that context of they're not just here, the son is being given back to them as parents and they paid a price they purchased. But what a picture of ultimately what this child will do. And so you hear in Simeon's words, words that would not be associated with what should be a very joyful occasion. Uh, they followed the law. They're, they're having their child kind of symbolically given back to them. But there's a dark side that comes with that announcement. And Simeon says first that this child will be the cause of the rising and falling of many. Literally, he'd be the cause of the death and resurrection of many. Again, I've done many baby dedications. I've never said this to a parent, that this child is going to be the cause of many rejoicing and much sorrow. And then I've never said the next thing, Simeon says, that there will be a sword that will pierce your soul too. And that word sword there means a, a spear, not, not like a little knife or something like that, but to emphasize that, that this child, from Mary's perspective as a mother, she will experience sorrow and grief. And we know that Mary treasured these things in her heart. She didn't fully comprehend them. But I think we get a glimpse at the cross, what she might have thought this was a reference to that a sword or a spear would pierce her son's side, but would also pierce her own soul. And so we see in Simeon's words this reminder that the one who came had to be a scorned savior. He had to be a scorned shepherd who would lead his people by redeeming them and paying the price for their sin. And so I trust as we look forward, and we should, to celebrating Christmas, 
that this will help us know and tell the whole story. That you need the dark side of Christmas to also rejoice in the light who has come. Which is why traditionally at the end of a service, we do the candle lighting. It's a reminder to us that this world is a world of gloom. It is a world of darkness. But the light has come into the world and that light, although it's not comprehended by the world, overcomes the world. And so the story of Christmas must include that entire message. In 2 Corinthians, let me read these words before we prepare to um, engage in our candle lighting. Paul writes this, he says, in verses 4 and 5 of 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let the light shine out of darkness. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we light our candles and then we will sing together Silent Night, think of that reminder. Go out as children of light in a dark world. <laughs> 